morning. Welcome on this Palm Sunday to Creekside Church. If you happen to be someone who's not part of our church family, we're just glad that you're joining with us. We want to welcome each and every one of you this morning as we celebrate what has been traditionally known as Palm Sunday around Christendom. I was recently made aware of Discovery, a new rendition of the Last Supper of Jesus makes us a little bit comforted and assured that we aren't alone having to celebrate Palm Sunday virtually. So if you want to take a look at this picture, a little bit of humor and levity, but uh, we're glad that you're worshiping with us, even if you're on Zoom or listening on YouTube or some other way, or even if you're just on the phone, you can't see the picture. It's a Zoom meeting with Jesus and the disciples at the Last Supper. So we're just glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. I want to remind you that at the end of the service, our practice at Creekside is that we celebrate the Lord's table every Sunday. And so if you aren't prepared and would like to be prepared, I'd invite you to scoot out now and go get some juice and some bread or crackers or however you want to observe the Lord's Supper. We'll do it at the end of the service. And what a fitting thing on this Palm Sunday. We're just glad that you're worshiping with us. Also want to remind you that next Sunday, Easter Sunday, our doors are not going to be open. But we're just so grateful and praise God that this door was, the door to the tomb was open so that we might have life and might have it abundantly. I was privileged yesterday to see here at church, we had a couple show up. Uh, one of our people, or actually Megan, our administrative assistant, came up with a brainchild. We had all these eggs. We we're planning on doing an Easter egg hunt next Saturday with uh, people in the community and our church and weren't able to do that. And so East, uh, Easter egg hunt went on. Not as scheduled, but anyhow, this is the stay-at-home Easter egg hunt. Thanks to Tom and Rose Vanderlinden for passing out the, the bags and for Megan and her family for packing them. Also for Katie Markart, who helped Tom and Rose pass out some bags to some of the refugee community. So we're just glad that we were able to use the candy and the eggs that we had and grateful to have that opportunity. Last thing I'd like to do as we get started this morning is probably the most important thing, and that is I'd just like to commit our service to prayer, and so I invite you to bow with me and close your eyes, and let's just pray. Father, well, we come this morning in really unprecedented times, just unusual that our entire country and many places in the world are just at such a standstill, and yet we know that you are active, living and active, and at work. And we're just grateful for the chance to meet, the chance to gather, even if it is remotely, to gather together. 
to celebrate your love for us, to be challenged from your word that we might grow in it. And so I pray that you'd open our eyes as the psalmist prayed, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law and ask that you would guide the service and use what's said and done for your glory. I particularly think this morning, Father, of those who are on the front lines combating the coronavirus. I pray for our healthcare workers, for those who are essential providers. I pray that you would give them safety and protection. I pray you'd give them stamina and strength. I pray that you'd give them grace and mercy that they need in these difficult times, Father. So many working so hard and long hours and difficult times and endanger themselves. And so I pray that you'd comfort and encourage them. I ask that you'd work in the lives of each of us who are kind of cloistered at home or at least trying to isolate as much as we can. I pray that you'd help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, knowing that even though we're absent from each other physically, we can be together in spirit. And I pray now, Father, that you would open your word to us, that we would be transformed by the power of your spirit working in and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. just ask a question in light of these days in which we're living. What is one document that really should be the standard by which we measure the legality of every single policy, every single procedure, every single payout, every single program that comes to us as a result of this emergency health crisis that's centered around the coronavirus? What, what is it, the document that should be the standard of measure. Well, if you live in the United States, that document should be the Constitution. What's one document, the one document, that should be the standard by which we measure a person's convictions, a person's character, a person's conduct, whether they're, uh, whether they're a believer or whether they're just in the world? What should be that Standard of measure. Well, should be the Scripture. Scripture should be the standard by which we're measured. The role of the Constitution plays in governing those of us who live in the United States is similar to, although it's less important, than the role the Word of God plays in the plan of God for all mankind. Interesting that when Jesus came on the scene proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, which he said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, or we read it there, people wondered if his mission and wondered if his message was really consistent with or contrary to what's taught in the Old Testament Scripture. Both then and now, understanding the person and the work of Jesus in relationship to the Word of God in the plan of God is critical if we're really going to be following him wholeheartedly and sincerely and genuinely. I think that's why Jesus, in his very first sermon, dealt with this issue. He explains the connection between the Bible and the implications of that connection so thoroughly. You see, the radical concept of righteous living, and by that he means kingdom character, which we talked about in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, which is seen and heard as his people are salt and light, which we talked about last week, is that to which he's called us, this righteous living. And it's not contrary to God's word. But as Jesus declares and demonstrates, and he declares and demonstrates it throughout 
the book of Matthew, but particularly in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, it's consistent with and impossible apart from the Word of God. So this morning, we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, to see Jesus and what he says about the Word of God and the plan of God. And here, there are four important characteristics of Scripture that he gives us for a better understanding of the Word of God and the plan of God. And the main points of my outline, the four main points, are a modification of what John MacArthur has put together in his commentary. I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to unpack these four different characteristics. Matthew chapter 5, if you have your phone or your device or your computer, or if you actually have a literal Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, the first thing we learn is that the word of God is preeminent. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus introduces what I would consider to be the main body of his Sermon on the Mount. When you see the words in verse 17, the law and the prophets, then look at chapter 7, verse 12. You see the same words appearing, the law and the prophets. And so they form bookends to what is one of the main sections of the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And so you can see that he's trying to establish the authority of both the Scripture and himself as its ultimate interpreter in verses 17 through 20. What follows in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 21 on through chapter 7, verse 12, is both an explanation of and an exhortation to kingdom righteousness, a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. I'm going to read again verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. If you're just reading down through the Sermon on the Mount, this kind of jumps out at me, maybe not at you, but it jumps out at me. It's kind of like, where did that come from? I mean, why is he talking about your salt and light, and then all of a sudden, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It seems to me that there's either a preventative cause or a curative cause that motivates Jesus to speak on these things. He's either trying to prevent people from assuming the wrong thing, or he's trying to cure an already present misconception about what he's trying to teach. Regardless, it says that he came. Jesus is teaching to, is meant to clarify the real or potential misunderstanding about his mission in ushering in the kingdom, and the righteousness of it related to the Old Testament, related to the Bible. And that he came has to do with the incarnation. It's when he came in the incarnation, he did not come to abolish, which literally means to destroy, means to demolish something. We live in Urbandale, and up on Hickman Road, there used to be a store, Slumberland. Well, where that store used to stand is an empty lot. 
because that store was demolished. It was destroyed. Jesus did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The goal was not to destroy. When he says the law and the prophets, it really is just a synonym for the entire Old Testament. That's what he means. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day, in some ways, held that the law was God itself. That's what they worshipped. They worshipped the law. Those who were followers of Jesus could have been accused of disregarding the law and worshipping just their salvation. We have Jesus. We don't need the law. What Jesus does is he maintains that both perspectives are deficient by holding up the preeminence of God's word. He says, on the contrary, actually, it doesn't say that in the text, but I think that's the intent. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So then we must ask, what does it mean that he came to fulfill the law? Well, fulfill doesn't mean simply to carry it out or to do what it says, although Jesus did both of those things perfectly. So it includes that, but that's not all it means. Fulfill is to actually do more than that. See, we have a mortgage on our home, and if you have a mortgage on your home and you pay the mortgage off, you fulfill the requirements of the mortgage. Well, Jesus did more than just do what was said or fulfill the requirements. He actually is the summation of it. He's actually the thing to which it points. He is the fulfillment of it. I want you to look at Colossians or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also, through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. So when it says that in him the promises are amen or yes, it seems that there's something more than just that he did what they said. No, they point to him. He is their fulfillment. Some of you spent time, some of you didn't, so if you don't understand this, that's fine. But there is an artist who had created this whole idea about finding Waldo within a picture. So people would look at these pictures and they'd say, well, where's Waldo? And they would spend however much time it took trying to find Waldo in the picture. Because the whole picture and the whole point of the picture was about finding Waldo. If you will allow me, the entire Old Testament is about where is Jesus? It's about Jesus. It's about finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And that's, I think, what he's trying to say. Waldo was the point of the picture. Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. The old, entire Old Testament, the law, first of all, points to the person and work of Jesus. He's the end game. In the book of Exodus, we know that that pointed to Jesus. How do we know that? Well, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, we say that out of Egypt I have called my son. That's the fulfillment. And Jesus is the fulfillment of it. So the Exodus was in many ways pointing to the person of Jesus. Now, there are other ways that the book of Exodus points to Jesus. We're not going to get into that right now. We learn that in the book of Hebrews, and we studied the book of Hebrews in our church, but in Hebrews chapter 7, or chapters 7 through 10, we know that that was a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. And Jesus, what was described in the Old Testament, the figures and the shadows were fulfilled in the substance of Jesus. 
all the Old Testament ceremonial law, including the Old Testament sacrifices, pointed to Jesus. Think about it. The priesthood. I was just reading this morning and, and reading about Aaron and how he offered up sacrifices. All that points to Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate high priest. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. The tabernacle, the sacrifices, all of the worship that took place there were a shadow of which Jesus is the substance. So when he was crucified, that system was fulfilled and set aside. It wasn't abolished, but all the ceremonial sacrificial system of the Old Testament was set aside because Jesus had come. The same thing is true for the judicial law, the law of how God related to his people in the Old Testament and how they related to each other. All their cleanliness and how they washed and cleansed themselves and all their dietary restrictions and what clothes they wore and those types of things were set aside when Jesus was crucified because when Jesus was crucified, the nation of Israel had rejected their Messiah. And he was set aside and he set aside their, that nation for a time. And so they were no longer served as his chosen people. Jesus also met the ethical demands of the law, the moral law. So there was the ceremonial law, and Jesus met that there and fulfilled that. There was the judicial law, and he fulfilled that. And the moral law, he also fulfilled that. And he asks those of us who are his followers to continue to fulfill the moral law. So that is the main obligation, the main requirement for his followers today is the moral law, which has yet to be fully completed until Christ returns, when Christ returns. We see it in Matthew chapter 22. What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is the moral law that God expects us to fulfill. So Jesus fulfilled not only the law, but also the prophets and all the other Old Testament promises and descriptions and explanations. He is the fulfillment. Think about it. We know that the promises and the prophecies concerning the place and the nature of his birth were fulfilled. We look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He was born in Bethlehem of a virgin. Consider his lineage. He was born of the house and the lineage of David in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. We see that. His life was described in Isaiah 53. His death was described in Isaiah 53 and in Psalm 22. His resurrection was explained for us and described for us in Psalm 16. The coming of the Spirit was explained for us or hinted at in Joel chapter 2. And so all these things, therefore, the entire Old Testament, it's not insignificant, it's not indispensable. No. It is indispensable. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not insignificant, but it's indispensable as a tutor. It teaches us, it draws us in, leading us to the person of Christ for salvation, and it's a teacher promoting Spiritual transformation. I want to make that point. So the Old Testament leads us to the person and work of Jesus for us. We see this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, where he is the tutor. Don't, let's, I don't want to look at that. I just want to refer to it right now. But he is the tutor to lead us to Christ. And then he's the teacher who promotes spiritual transformation in our life. And we read this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scriptures God breathed. And Paul's talking about the Old Testament there. And he's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What's that? Transformation. That's what Jesus, he becomes the authoritative interpreter 
of all that he has fulfilled. What Jesus came and fulfilled, which is the entire Old Testament, he has the right to speak about and to interpret, which is exactly what he does. As we continue our study of Matthew, we're going to see in verses 21 through 48 in chapter 5 that Jesus tells us what Moses meant when he gave these laws on how to relate to each other, the moral law that he gave. He's going to tell us that. Jesus validated the veracity, the truthfulness, and the authority of the Old Testament. The preeminence of Scripture that it is not to be dispensed of necessitates, I think, our appreciation and should call us to adhere to it. So there's the preeminence of Scripture in verse 17. Secondly, we learn about the permanence of God's Word in verse 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. For truly, I say, he's explaining why he came to fulfill. It indicates something of great importance. For truly, I say to you, I received this in the mail. You probably can't. Well, you can't see it now, I'm sure. But it says this, important safety recall notice in bold red, the letters are white, but bold red. Important, safety recall notice, something you're supposed to pay attention to. Open immediate, send it back, do something with it. You know, it's, your, your life depends on it. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there's something of great importance. He stressed the accuracy, and he stressed the authority of God's word by declaring its reliability in relation to its enduring quality. The authority, the accuracy, as he declared its reliability in relationship to its enduring quality, thus the statement, until heaven and earth pass away. When is that? The end of human history. All of God's word is being and will be fulfilled in its every detail. Not the slightest letter. In the Hebrew, there is a letter that just looks like a little squiggly line. It's yod, that's the, the smallest letter. And little stroke, Hebrew doesn't have vowels. So they, they make little pointings and dots and strokes around the letters to indicate which, which meaning it is. None of that's going to be fall short of being accomplished until heaven and earth pass away. Not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke shall pass away. So it means every command. Every prophecy, every promise, every type, every figure, every symbol will be accomplished. I find it kind of interesting that in these uncertain days, uh, stock market analysts and economists, they're, they're spouting their predictions and their prognostications and their prescriptions for the best financial positioning that you can have. They're just guessing. They're guessing. They have no clue, really, what's going to happen. God's Word is not a guess. God's Word is not something that we should look lightly on. It's an eternal document, and that eternity is further attested later on in Matthew by Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will not pass away. See, God's Word outlasts, outlasts the world. And I find it fascinating that Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that the world is actually being held together right now and preserved by the Word. The Word of God. 
is keeping things going so God has more yet to be fulfilled in his word until heaven and earth pass away. And he's not letting heaven and earth pass away because his word won't let it happen until his word is complete. Jesus brought to completion the ceremonial law and the judicial law and much of the moral law. Much of what has been said has been accomplished and, and, and fulfilled in Jesus, and yet some has yet to be fulfilled. He hasn't returned yet, which he will. He hasn't instituted his final judgment on the world, but he will. The new heaven and new earth haven't come down yet, but they will. Rest assured that nothing of all that God has promised, all that he's commanded, all that he's prophesied will be accomplished. accomplished. Nothing will be left undone until it is all accomplished and done by him. Now, that's a bold assertion. That's a bold assertion of the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority, the accuracy, and the permanence of God's Word. And there are some implications, I think, that that warrants. In other words, if this is true, which Jesus says it's true, it's permanent. It's preeminent. You must listen to it. It's going to happen. It's permanent. What's the implication? First of all, I think it should bring conviction. It should bring a conviction to our hearts to receive God's word for what it is. It's the word firmly planted, able to save our souls. It's the word of God that leads us to the Son of God so that we can have salvation in God. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 and uh, 22 kind of indicate this. Looking at the Old Testament, Paul says this, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come, the seed being Jesus, to whom the promise had been made. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, to, so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then we go on in verses 24 and 26. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ. See, the reality is that we're sinful people. The coronavirus is a bad thing. It's deadly. It causes a lot of disease, but it is not the most lethal thing humans face. We face our own humanity. We fall short of God's glory. We deserve His judgment. And in Christ, the Word of God through the entire Bible, the Old Testament, points us to the person and the work of Jesus, which is able, He is able to cure our greatest disease. He's able to fix our greatest problem, which is our separation from God. And it's through faith in His Son. And if His Word is true, which He says it is, if it's accurate, if it's permanent, that everything will be accomplished, then that means the judgment of God and the blessings of God will be accomplished. It should bring conviction to turn from our sin and to trust in Christ because death and judgment are certain, so are blessing and life with Him. And this eternal life which He promises begins the moment we trust Christ. Secondly, there should be a compulsion for those who are trusting in Christ to live for Him. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, the, that he said that the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And then he said in verse 18, but 
all this is from God. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We should be living for God, proclaiming the word of God as his ambassadors. That's what he goes on to say in, in verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though we were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He, that is God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, that's what Palm Sunday and Easter are all about, is what Christ did. And what I'm trying to say is that Jesus said, this is the thrust, this is the point, this is the meaning of the entire Old Testament is pointing to Christ and what he did. And we're supposed to, as believers, if we know Christ, we're supposed to proclaim it. We're also supposed to practice it. You know, we proclaim it because Jesus proclaimed it. I'm not going to go there, but you can look up Luke chapter 4. In verses 16 through 18, Jesus said, I came. He opens the the prophecy of Isaiah and he, he says, I proclaim to you the gospel. Preach the gospel to the poor. Release captives Release to the captives, favorable year of the Lord. This was a quote of Isaiah, and he says, this has been fulfilled in your presence right now. And he proclaimed it to them, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Nobody can come to a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ without hearing the message that they need to turn from their sins, and they need to trust in Christ, and accept his death as the payment for their sins so that they can be forgiven. And that's the thrust of the Old Testament. We're supposed to proclaim it, and then we're supposed to practice it. God's Word, we're supposed to practice. 2 Timothy 2.15, we're really privileged to have a good Awana ministry. Well, when we can meet, we have a good Awana ministry. But Awana is based on 2 Timothy 2.15. A workman needs to be approved. An approved workman needs not to be ashamed. Well, God wants us to be diligent, to be approved workmen, to live for Him, and to love Him. Because if we say that we have come to know Him and we do not keep His commandments, John says in 1 John, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we have come to know Him, then we will love even as He loved. We will obey His commandments. That's what we do as God's people. Next, this idea of the permanence should promote confidence in us. I was interested in John chapter 17, verse 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Are you confident that the word of God is truth? And that the word of God is truth that is intended to make us holy? As Christians in this world, we're decried, we're demeaned, we're put down, we're made fun of. But here's the truth. We have the truth. And if we know that we have the truth, then we can stand it even when we're maligned, even if we're falsely accused. We can be guided and be confident that let God be true and every other person be a liar. Every day, we get new information on the spread and the seriousness of the coronavirus. Well, whose truth is truth? I heard this, that everybody, there, for every opinion, there's an equal and opposite opinion. But for every fact, there's not an equal and opposite fact. There's only one fact. The greatest facts are found in the truths of the Word of God. God's Word never changes. All the stats, statistics, seriousness of corona, 
changes from day to day. Eventually they'll figure it out. But right now, God's word never changes and it never will. And finally, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, the word of God, the permanence of the word of God should bring comfort that every promised outcome, if it hasn't been experienced yet, it will be, finally. There's a final outcome. And it's guaranteed to all of God's children through Abraham, through faith. Despite the fact that we're disconnected, despite the fact that that's hard, to, you know, we want to see each other. We want to talk to each other. We want to be a, a church family, and it's hard to be a family when you can't be together. Despite the disconnect we feel, either personally from God in our relationship with Him or from each other, despite the despair that some of you are experiencing because the economy is, is tanking or it has tanked, or it's about to tank, or whatever. There are realities. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you are maybe, of us, may lose our jobs. Some of us don't have enough savings. Some of us are going to be pressed. Some of us are employers, and we can't pay our employees. That's not a good place to be. Perhaps it's the disappointment of large group things that are canceled. I was thinking, you know, if you're a senior in high school, or senior in college, or if you're even in school, you're missing out on a lot. A lot of things that are important to you, a lot of those never again to be repeated opportunities to interact with your friends and to do things that, you know, were going to be the last time you did it. And that's not not fun. It's disappointing. And then there's just plain discouragement from life. I mean, you get up in the morning and you ache in places you didn't know you had. Uh, Maybe you don't feel as good as you'd like to. Maybe you're just exhausted or you're depressed because you're one of those frontline essential workers and you don't know if you have enough in you to go to work today. I don't know. For others of us, it's witness corruption and deception and that stuff, injustice, and it gets rewarded and you think, wow, this is crazy. I want to say that the scripture comes to us, Jesus comes to us and he says, the final chapter hasn't been written. Well, actually it's been written. It just hasn't been accomplished yet, fulfilled yet. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, if you will. It says, And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. If you're a child of God, you're an heir according to the promise. The promises are are going to be fulfilled in us. The coronavirus will pass. Maybe it'll come back again, but its worst effects will pass. The wicked will be judged, and the righteous will be blessed. As the words of the song say, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. There's the preeminence of God's word we learn about. We learn about the permanence of God's word. And in verse 19, we learn about the priority of God's word. Given the certainty that every last detail will be fulfilled, Jesus declares that obeying God's word and teaching God's word is a top priority. I mean, there's nothing more important than than that people should live by and proclaim the Word of God. There's two groups of people he talks to, and each one has a separate consequence. The first group he talks to here are those who annul the Word of God. Now, the New American Standard says annul. Maybe your version just says disobeys or lets go or is loose on. And I want you to read verse 19. He says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments... And some of you are, oh, so there are some that are more important than others. I don't have to abide by the the, the least commandments. Well, think about 
the greatest commandment when Jesus was asked about it. What's the greatest commandment? He says there's the greatest commandment. And then there's a second one, the second greatest commandment. When Jesus was going back and forth with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, he says, you ignore the most important commandments and you magnify the least significant. So there is some order of importance. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a priority on obedience to all of them. Just because some are higher ranked than others, we have laws, and some laws are more important than other laws. But that doesn't mean that we have a right to disobey any of them. Jesus is not giving license to disobey. There is not a part of God's Word, no part of God's Word, that should be ignored. There's no part of God's Word that should be treated lightly or disobeyed or taught erroneously. I was sitting in a group of people and there was a theological discussion and someone made a defense of a biblical truth. And there was another man, a professing believer in the audience, and he said, I know that's what the Bible says. I just don't agree with it. Unfortunately, we have a lot of us who are living Knowing what the Bible says, we just don't agree with it in the way we live. And Jesus says, uh-uh. The one who annuls the least of these commandments will be least in the kingdom of God. Now, I think they're still in. Uh, they're a member of the kingdom of God. It's just that their effectiveness, their youthful, usefulness, their fruitfulness will be diminished because they are playing fast and loose with the Scriptures. Then there's a second group. Those who affirm God's word. He says that those people will be blessed, will be greatest in the kingdom of God. We keep and we proclaim the word of God, not because doing so earns us a place in the kingdom. He's not saying that. We do so because of our union with Christ leaves us necessarily desirous of doing it. Notice the text. He says, those and so teaches others, he shall be called least. And the one who, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom. He's great in the kingdom. He's already in the kingdom because he's trusting in Christ and Christ's death as the payment for his sins. Galatians 3.13 tells us that we're not entering into the kingdom by our own works. It's by our faith. But if we are in the kingdom, we are going to live out our faith and it's going to be evident by people. You can read and look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 on your own if you'd like. But there Paul basically says that we've been united with Christ in his death and his burial. Through faith, we're united with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. Then we're going to live for Christ. We're going to be like we have been united with him. Therefore, if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall be in the, with him in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that the old self has been crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We're no longer slaves of sin. Lloyd-Jones put it this way, grace is that which brings me to love God. And if I love God, I long to keep his commandments. When he says that those who do that are great in the kingdom, he's saying that greatness in the kingdom is a function of our perspective on Scripture, our proclamation of Scripture, our practice of Scripture. And that's irregardless of our position, irregardless of our popularity, 
irregardless of our prosperity. So every believer has the opportunity to be great in the kingdom of God. It's not those people who are the most prolific writers in the Christian community, those great artists who have the most albums that are sold or most CDs or most uploads to MP3s or YouTube hits. No, it's those who have a perspective that the Word of God is a priority. And they proclaim the Word of God as a priority. And they practice the Word of God as a priority. And all of us have room to grow in this. It's not like we're all arrived. No. So I ask myself, and I ask, is, is, is the teaching and obedience to the Word of God a priority? The Word of God is preeminent. The Word of God is permanent. The Word of God is a priority. And finally, we learn about the purpose of the Word of God. In verse 20, he says, For I say to you, Again, another reason, another purpose statement as to why Jesus came to fulfill the law. He calls us to a higher standard, a higher standard than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now let's remember who they were. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most trained people in the law. They conformed to its demands. In fact, they added stuff to it just so they could prove that they were better than other people. They were merely religious. They were not righteous in God's eyes. They practiced this self-absorbed sort of uh, external conformity that really didn't amount to real worship. I just remind you what Jesus had to say to them in Matthew chapter 23 in just a few verses. In verse 20, 20, chapter 23, verse 4, he says, And they tie up heavy loads, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them so much, with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. So they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. Yeah, that's what they do. But they also are known... In other places, in verse 14, he says this of them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. So they're out there taking a widow's house, and at the same time, on the other hand, they're in there offering up great prayers so people will see them. The problem is, folks, that Pharisaic spirituality still exists, and it's a, a Pharisaic spirituality that leaves people out of the kingdom of God. This is not the righteousness of God. <clears throat> this is the righteousness of man. And Jesus is saying, your righteousness must exceed it. He demands a righteousness that I'm going to contend, and I think Jesus contends, that, that the law actually points to which surpasses, and it surpasses both qualitatively and quantitatively that of those paragons of piety, those spiritual, super spiritual people. But the relaxing thing is, the comforting thing is, what, what the Lord requires, He provides. I want you to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Now, what do I mean by that? What is it saying? Well, Christ offered himself. And when he offered himself as the sacrifice, he satisfied the requirement of God on the sins of those who would believe. The requirement was death, separation from God. And so Jesus satisfied that for all who believe so that the requirements of the law will be fulfilled in us. Surpassing righteousness is our possession by virtue of faith in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, or he makes that clear. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. It's righteousness that God imputes to us by virtue of, uh, of our belief or our faith. That's why Paul goes on to say, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been declared righteous by our faith. So that's the possession of righteousness. But then the righteousness that is possessed through faith is then expressed by the Spirit of God working through us. Notice the end of that phrase. He says, the, the Spirit working, the, the Spirit that is working. Paul said in Galatians 5, you live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. Our conformity to the Word of God is by, when it's true righteousness, comes as a result of God's Spirit working within us. And that's seen, that's particularly seen, as Jesus goes on to explain it in verses 21 through chapter 7, verse 12 in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. So here we go. The purpose of the Word of God is to make us righteous. It's not about our dutifully doing all this Jesus stuff. Well, I, I went to church. I mean, some of you, okay, no, I didn't go to church. Nobody went to church today, right? There's just very few of us went to church today because you're at home, but you're observing church and you're reading your Bibles. And I think these are all good things, but that's not what makes us righteous. Oh, I avoid this stuff. I do that stuff. I don't do this stuff. No, it's not legalism. That's not what makes us righteous. The purpose of the word of God is to make us righteous. Have you ever let your driver's license expire you know then you have to go take the test again and so you can get the little driver's license manual instruction manual on how to take the test and you prepare for it or perhaps you are old enough that you have children and those children have had to take the test and you go and you now you don't buy a book you probably just go online and you download it or you just view it online but the purpose of the manual is to make us a better driver the purpose of the bible is to make us righteous. It's to make us righteous. And he says, those who, who, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and phrase, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh-oh. So I have to do something to get in. I don't think he's saying that being righteous is the path to entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It's proof that you are in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we're not saved by our works, but if we are saved, we do the works because the Spirit of God is living within us and that's the fruit that comes out of us. Only those who surpassing, right, surpassing righteousness who surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees are in the kingdom. I mean, Galatians or Romans chapter 3, verse 28 says, therefore a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's not by what I do. But you go to James, faith without works is dead. So there's two sides of the same coin. If I'm saved by grace through faith, then I'm righteous positionally, and I will practice righteousness 
because of the Spirit of God working within me. That's true. Nobody is saved by works, okay? So the question is, for each of us, is my claim to possess the righteousness of Christ, is my claim that I possess the righteousness of Christ, I'm a follower of Jesus, is it proven or validated by my practice of righteousness? Not perfectly, but am I progressing? Am I moving? Am I going in the right direction? Some of you this morning may be listening or watching and you think, well, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. You've really been talking a lot. Well, that's the Bible. And Jesus said the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament points to him. And the New Testament is actually the description of how he fulfills what's done in the Old Testament. And you're here and you say, I don't know. I don't really, I haven't really surrendered my life to Christ. I'm not really sure I should because I'm, I'm really, and as I listen to you speak, you know, you may be averse to this idea of an objective moral standard because that's the thing today is that everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Yeah. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. And so you can do whatever you want, right? No, you can't do whatever you want. Or you can, but that's not what the Bible says. You might also be kind of like annoyed by thinking, well, I'm teaching legalism, that Jesus is actually teaching legalism. Well, I want you to consider the idea about this moral absolute. You think there are no moral absolutes? What's the natural logical conclusion to the reasoning that everybody can do whatever they want? My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. You can do what you want. I'll do what I want. That's anarchy. The logical conclusion to moral relativism is anarchy. Jesus is not teaching anarchy. No, he's teaching that there are moral absolutes and we must follow them. We must look to them in order to lead us to realize that we're messed up and we need Christ and he's the answer. And then we can live this righteous life instead of trying to live a righteous life apart from, from Christ. It doesn't work that way. As far as legalism goes, Jesus is teaching just exactly the opposite. He's teaching faith-motivated devotion to Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ in me that is worked out in my practice. It's not that I'm just doing this duty to earn my way to heaven. No, not at all. If you're here and you know, uh, you know he, he gives us the opportunity, Jesus does, to experience what the world is impotent to achieve on its own, right standing before God and right living for God. I just invite you to, to accept what Christ has done. It's the answer to what aches in your soul. And believers, I don't know about you, but I've been caused to think, do I really believe the Word of God is preeminent? Is it supreme? Is it permanent, unalterable, inerrant, and absolutely certain to be fulfilled in all of its smallest details? That should be an encouragement to us. It should be a challenge to us. Is it a priority? Do I preach it? Do I practice it? No, I don't completely. But, but I, God's grace, I will do more and more and better and better, not because I have to, to earn my favor with God, but because I want to, because God is my king. And it's a priority. And its purpose is to make me more righteous. Honor it. Heed it. Herald it. I don't know a better way to close this message on Jesus' proclamation of the importance and the value of the Word of God than to celebrate this time and communion. And so I just invite you to join us as we take these symbols of Christ's offering, which satisfied God's requirement. When Christ died on the cross, He satisfied the requirement of God that sin must be punished for all who would believe. So if you believe and accept it, then his death paid the debt you owe, that I owe. 
And we acknowledge his fulfillment of all that the Old Testament told us was going to happen. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Let us come and join the feast so that all who believe would rejoice that we are forgiven. And so our practice is that you would take the bread. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and and then I invite you to take the bread as Jesus invited his disciples to take the bread. But take a few moments maybe and just examine your heart and say, Lord, is your word preeminent in my life? Do you really believe it's necessary to have the Old Testament as well as the New Testament? Is the permanence of the word of God, its authority, its reliability, something I convicts me of my sin? Is it something that gives me confidence that it's true, something that comforts me, something that compels me to live for you more fully. I understand the priority of the Word of God, and I can't just go about my life and ignore it. And Is it something that I want to understand that through the Word of God I become righteous, and through the Word of God I'm becoming more like Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word. I thank you for this time that we can take this bread and, and eat it as a reminder of what you've done for us on the cross of Calvary so that those who believe become righteous. That just blows my mind. We are righteous in Christ. And that those who are righteous in Christ not only possess it, but by your Spirit working in us, we, possess, we practice it more and more consistently. Thank you for this bread and thank you for this cup. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your bread, I'd invite you to take your bread, break it off, take a moment to pray. You may take the bread. We thank Lord for his bloodshed. Cleanse us from all our sins. You may drink the cup. Father, thank you. And I just pray, even as I'm proclaiming these truths, that you would wash over our souls with these truths, that they become more powerfully integrated into our lives. I pray that if there's anyone who doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would see that all of the Old Testament is not there to bind us, but is there to lead us to the person and work of Jesus that would liberate us from our sin, liberate us from the consequence of death, liberate us from the power of sin over us that would dictate our lives and that would enable us to live free in Christ. And they would turn from their sin and trust you. I pray for each of us who know you, that Lord, we would see that your word will never pass away, that we would see that it leads us always ultimately to the person of Jesus and you interpret it fully I pray that we might see it as a priority and not just out of duty but out of devotion and that we would re relish in the purpose of your word that we would receive it if we haven't become righteous in Christ and that we would rejoice in it if we have we pray in Jesus name amen we hope and pray that you'll join us next week as we celebrate Easter together thanks for joining us this morning have a great day.